Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yuel Enbar. With me here is my co-host and friend Mickey Inslecht. How you doing, Mickey? I'm doing well. It's uh, it's you know start middle of January here, and I'm uh, uncharacteristically optimistic about the winter. Uh, yeah, it's been super weird, like warm, rainy, crazy downpour all day yesterday. Yeah, 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 and just pleasant, sunny weather right now. And uh, I'm teaching a couple of classes this term, and uh, I'm actually really excited about it. Uh, gives me a chance to connect with uh, with U of T students again, which I'm looking forward to. So how long has it been? Like a couple of years since you taught? <laughs> it's been almost a couple of years. So I had my sabbatical last year and I only teach in one term anyway. So it's been uh, about uh, 18 months, maybe 20 months since I've taught. Uh, so it's been a long time. It's a tough life being a university professor, isn't it? It's very, very difficult. Hard, hard work. I, and you know all about it uh, because I heard that uh, in your luxurious holiday in California, you acted like a sloth. Uh, that's, uh, I think, <laughs> sloths probably do more than I did. Um, I was very proud of myself for uh, keeping to a schedule of getting out of bed at a reasonable hour, which is not a guarantee when I'm in California staying with my parents. Uh, there is a high risk of sleeping till noon. So I managed... Uh, to to avoid that, but I did. Man, you know the thing is, you get get up, you do a little stuff, maybe a little work, then you go to the gym, and then you go to In and Out, and then you're sleepy. You've had a double cheeseburger, then you want a nap, and that's practically dinner time. So yeah, so the main activity is going to In and Out Burger. Um, I don't I don't know if you caught this, well, but uh, uh, there was some uh, fan reaction to our last episode when you had mentioned uh, your kind of puzzlement uh, about Canadians' love for uh, Tim Hortons. And there were some American uh, listeners who were like, yeah, there's a couple of places like that. And one person actually mentioned In-N-Out Burger. Like, it's like this kind of cult-like you know, phenomenon, I guess, especially in California. And this, according to this one listener, at least, it's like, eh, it's a burger. Not that good. Yeah, well, so I, I blocked that person immediately, obviously. <laughs> I don't contaminate my Twitter feed with those sorts of heresies. I think In-N-Out is a good example. Uh, there's another example that a listener wrote in with. I'm now forgetting her name, for which I'm really sorry. Uh, but she mentioned Wawa, which is like a Philly area thing, um, like a chain of convenience stores that are, in fact, really good. And I used to eat there all the time when I was in Philly. Um, and there's also a rival chain, Sheets, except it's spelled with a Z. Uh, and there, it's like a, a sort of... A, it gets sort of intense between the loyalists, the Wawa loyalists and the Sheets loyalists. It's sort of like a holy war kind of thing. Wawa versus Sheets. Wawa versus Sheets. So yeah, we can maybe we can have a Twitter poll or something, see how our listenership breaks down on that um, important dimension. Uh, yeah, so uh, California was good. Um, coming back, I, uh, I happened to read a tweet by a former guest of ours, friend of the show, uh, Sarah Hader, who the tweet was something like, uh, I don't know that I get anything from reading the news. And I was like, that's an interesting point. Like, and there was a link to some, uh, I don't know, thing, talk or something that somebody else gave about like, why not to read the news? And so I, I'm trying it. I was like, what if I just like quit reading the news? Because it does 100% make me anxious. And uh, I, don't, I don't know that I get anything from it. Right. And also, it's a huge time suck. I think the news is bad for your health. I think listening to the news and especially local news uh, where you, you get kind of sucked into the local crime stories and you get these ideas, these notions of how dangerous a place might be. That's you typically an overinflation of the true crime stats of that place. So try to stay away. Yeah, right. So my thinking is 
you know, do I need to know any of this stuff really? And you could say like, oh, you should be an informed voter or whatever. So I, I think, you know, when it comes election time, then I'll like do some research or something or maybe read some longer form pieces. But like the day to day stuff, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I need to know any of this stuff. Right. Does my having knowledge about or an opinion about what's going on in Iran right now, like have any sort of practical consequences? I, I don't think so. It just seems like entertainment. Yeah, kind of reminds me a little bit, uh, this thought I had uh, in response to what you just said, reminds me of this, this quote uh, from Endel Telving, who's a famous uh, psychologist, a memory researcher from the University of Toronto, and I think more recently uh, at the University of Washington in St. Louis. Um, he, uh, he was asked how, if he doesn't read journals from cover to cover, how does he stay informed? And he goes, well, you know, the big papers, uh, everyone talks about them and, and everyone knows about them. And then you go and read them. So you're told, you know, in other words, you're instructed about what is important to read. And I think the same thing here with the news, like the small little things that seem big at the time. If no one's talking about them a week or two or a month later, maybe you don't really need to know them. But the big stories, you will, everyone will be talking about them. And then maybe you're motivated enough to then go ahead and do a little bit of research and, and read about it. Right. Um, so this is my experiment, and I'm going to be keeping this up for the month of January and then reevaluating to see whether I feel like I've missed anything. How is my state of mind? I do find just in the first few days that it leaves me more time for reading other things that I want to read. So like fiction, for example, I have more time for that because I'm not like constantly refreshing the news to see if anything has happened. Uh, so uh, let's see. We need to talk about beers before we get to the actual content. Yes, we do. And in fact, I haven't opened it because I want this. We have a can. And I should note that uh, we are drinking a regular size can, a 355 milliliter can. Which is not our usual. No, our usual is uh, 500 mil, so a pint or close to a pint. Um, so this is kind of a, a way out for you, UL. I mean, in a way, like, it, it, it's not so, so bad that you can't drink two pints, but there's no excuse for not drinking two Mini cans, really mini cans of beer. It's a standard size can. <laughs> for us, they are mini. Um, all right, so I'm kind of excited for this. We've got, uh, I was uh, on Geary Street in Toronto last night for dinner. Uh, and it was very close to this uh, brewery called Blood Brothers Brewing, which I believe we've had once before. And we're drinking something called Devil's Trill 12, which I mean, must, I imagine must mean their 12th version of this. Cypress Trill, it's an India Pale Ale. Uh, 6.3% alcohol by volume. So are you going to open this on mic? I will. And I'm hoping not to spill on my, on my laptop this time. Success. Beautiful. Cheers. Cheers. Doesn't really make a satisfying clink. No, not without glasses. Oh, that's yummy. I like it. Yeah, that's unusual, right? Like a... Uh, a, a lot more. Uh, if I had the website here, I could, I could pretend to know what I was talking about. Um, but it, it, at least it's not a typical uh, beer. It's got a, a, unusual notes in there, I think. Maybe we should stop pretending to know anything about beer. <laughs> <laughs> we should. And this this actually reminds me. Uh, we got this uh, uh, funny uh, direct messages from one of our listeners named Kyle Thomas, who uh, called us uh, cringy. Uh, for our discussion of um, of beers, specifically, I think at one point I offhanded said, you know, I don't like ales or lagers. Well, he was very disappointed in that because it turns out that every beer is either an ale 
or a lager. There are only two kinds of beers, in fact. Um, and uh, every other variant, uh, you know, have, have different names, like an India Pale Ale. Uh, even sours are, you know, essentially a, a lager or an ale with some different additives. Um, but essentially, you know, they're one of these two yeasts uh, that make a, a beer, a lager or an ale, and that's it. So me saying I dislike lagers and ale is, uh, is quite uh, stupid. Well, we thank Kyle for writing in and, and pointing out how uh, uninformed we are. And I, you know, I feel like um, I, I've always owned that, not knowing anything about beer. I, I think the beer podcast thing might have given some people the idea that we actually know what we're talking about. And we should just dispel all doubt right now. We do not know anything. I think we like drinking beer. We like it. Yeah. And maybe our tastes are we don't want to drink Bud Light. Uh, you might like uh, the champagne of beers occasionally. I, You know, I think just a regular Bud. I don't really like the light, but just a regular Budweiser is not bad on a... On a hot day, it's refreshing. Right. So I, I guess that's where we, you and I differ a little bit. So I, I don't want to stoop that low, um, but I know nothing about beer other right. than that it tastes good. Right. Which is really the important point anyway. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, thanks for picking this up and cheers. Cheers again. Okay. Now, uh, we have two, I, I would say, entirely unconnected topics today. Um, so in the second half of the show, uh, we want to talk about uh, Tal Yarconi's generalizability crisis paper, paper that we both read, I think, close to when it first came out. And we were like, oh, we got to talk about this. And then it sort of got pushed back behind other stuff. Um, but it's, uh, it's something I'm really excited to get into more. But first, uh, Mickey, you proposed a topic to me, so I will let you introduce it. Yes. Um, so we, we, we would like to have at least a, a couple of topics. And um, I think it was New Year's Eve. Uh, I was on Twitter and I noticed that ContraPoints was was trending. And for those of you who don't know who ContraPoints is, uh, ContraPoints is a YouTube personality, a creator. Um, she's a transgender woman who... Um, is a former philosophy graduate student and is brilliant. You know, uh, I think incredibly smart um, and covers topics that, you know, uh, that are those of, you know, who are interested in philosophy will, will, will find something to like there. But also if you're into, if you're interested in, in, in the trans community, trans issues, LGBTQT plus one communities, I missed up there somewhere. Um, uh, she's just, you know, she's really, 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 really well informed. And I was just curious as, you know, you know, she's got, I think, a, close to a million subscribers on YouTube. Her videos are watched at least a million times each. I mean, she's, uh, she's making, I think, good money on Patreon. She's uh, an influential creator on YouTube these days. So I was curious as to, to why she was trending. And she put out a, 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 uh, a video on um, called Cancelink. Um, it's on, of course, cancel culture, or sometimes also called uh, call-out culture. And it's a topic that I'm kind of interested in because it seems like, well, a lot of people write about it, uh, a lot of people complain about it, but yet it's controversial because some people, uh, progressives, say there's no such thing as cancel culture. All, um, all quote-unquote cancel culture is, is just powerful people who are making up some term because they're complaining now that they're being called to task for uh, misbehavior or at least perceived misbehavior. So a, a prominent example of, 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 let's say, cancel culture will be the, the Me Too movement where um, many women, I think rightfully, started you know online shaming uh, and calling out 
powerful men, such as Harvey Weinstein, uh, uh, Louis C.K., uh, and, and many, many others, who uh, acted poorly uh, and maybe acted in a way, behaved in a way such that they deserve to be criticized and maybe they deserve to be shamed. I mean, certainly in the case of Harvey Weinstein, uh, deserve to be shamed. So th this is what cancel culture is. And she created a video um, uh, kind of breaking down uh, the, what she calls cancel culture tropes, which I'll get into in a moment. But maybe before I get into it, I should say that I think the motivation for ContraPoints creating this video uh, is that she herself has been canceled, or at least there have been attempts to cancel her. And I, you know, so her video is about two hours. It's like a feature, it's a feature length film. And I would say the good, the, the first 20 minutes are brilliant. The middle hour is like a lot of talking about a lot of like inside baseball about, you know, trans activism and the trans community and the various factions within the trans community that are fighting each other. And I guess she um, created a video that uh, had a 10 minute, you know, uh, a clip of some someone doing a voice and this person doing a voice is someone that certain factions of the trans community detest, dislike, loathe. Uh, and, and the details of which are, are at least for, uh, for us, maybe not so interesting. But if you're interested in this in this world, check it out. It's 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 a, at the very least an entertaining video. Um, so what did you think uh, about the video more generally, uh, Yoel? Yeah, so what I thought was really useful about it, um, and this maybe comes from her philosophy background, is she tried to be a little more rigorous about defining terms. And one of the things that I consistently find really frustrating about these cancel culture think pieces, the dialogue about it, whatever, is that nobody defines what they're talking about. So is it the same thing? to say, you know, Harvey Weinstein should be prosecuted for rape and uh, to say, we're going to get into this example, but like this makeup YouTuber uh, is a bad person. Like those both get kind of like lumped under this umbrella term of like canceling. And it, it's not at all clear to me that those are the same thing. So I think you can... Uh, kind of make the definition as extensive as possible. And at that point, it's really just kind of harsh criticism of anybody by anybody for anything. And maybe as an undertone to it of like, this person should be fired or um, we shouldn't be paying attention to them anymore or whatever. Um, but that's something that like, I don't think is unique to now. Um, I don't think it's unique to the internet. I think you can find the examples like going back quite a ways. And it's, I don't know that we need a new term to talk about this. And I'm not actually convinced that it's any more common now than it was, uh, you know, 20 years ago, let's say. Uh, on the other hand, and this is how she defines it, you can also look at it as like a dynamic that plays out within like fairly small insular communities in which the community decides to ostracize one of the members because of, you know, an alleged infraction against community norms or maybe more vaguely just a sense that they're a, a bad person who doesn't share the right values. That's a really different thing, right? So the, the first definition is super broad and the second definition is something that, you know, might have really serious consequences for members of those communities um, like if, if you're on the receiving end of the ostracism, for example, uh, but that just by definition, like can't happen that broadly, right? It requires this small insular community with a very kind of um, 
well-defined set of norms that everybody adheres to such that you can say so-and-so is a norm violator and we should kick them out. Right. That just doesn't make any sense applied to Harvey Weinstein or um, Louis C.K. or, you know, like a just a regular famous person. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, uh, and I think, you know, in, 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 in the two examples of Louis C.K. And, and especially Harvey Weinstein, I mean, this is uh, far beyond cancel culture. This is like I mean, he's he's a criminal. Uh, in the case of Harvey Weinstein. Um, and in fact, I think he wasn't he just indicted very recently or uh, I know there was some 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 advances in his in his court case recently that, um, you know, uh, would make a lot of progressive happy because uh, he's being called and, and being being held accountable. Um, but I think the kind of uh, cancel culture that she is talking about is maybe more the second kind where it's. Um, it's kind of there's a mobbing. There's a, there's a group of people um, who all think the same way and who've decided either en masse or individually, but but many, many individuals doing it together, they are mobbing and, and demanding uh, the firing of, uh, of a person or that no one respect this person or no, that no one talk, this, talk to this person or that someone is blackballed or excommunicated from a group or a profession. Um, and there have been, you know, serious repercussions uh, for people who are not so famous and who are not, it's not so clear they've done such wrong things. So a very, very famous example is um, this, you know, this woman, Justine Sacco, who boarded a plane and, 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 and kind of tweeted, she had like, I think like a handful of followers and she tweeted some racist uh, thing uh, that, it was. It seemed like she was also half joking about it. Um, and she, she gets off the plane and she's flying Africa, and all of a sudden, you know, thousands of people are calling for her to be fired, to be dismissed. And in fact, she was fired, and her life has been miserable ever since. And in fact, I think just recently, this happened many, many years ago, and um, just recently she was in the news again because she tried. She was hired by some company doing something completely different, and people were again kind of upset about her being even hired, all for this one, let's say you know, off-color joke, a bad tweet, a bad tweet. And she was canceled and, and there were serious repercussions for her. Okay, well, that's, that's sort of a different dynamic though, right? Because you can't really point to this like specific community that she's a member of that like, you know, then now people think that she's transgressed the norms of or whatever. This is more, she came to like very broad attention on the basis of one ill thought out tweet that she, you know, was aiming at a hundred friends or something, and then it became national news, right? So that is a little bit different. Um, there, you know, I mean, I wonder how many people think that that was a good outcome that, you know, I, even a lot of people who criticized her might have said, well, like she shouldn't be unemployed for life because she did one dumb thing. And there I'm a little more convinced that like the dynamics of like social media where like everybody can have an opinion and it's very easy to like pile on without realizing that maybe, you know, millions of other people are doing the same thing um, that can that can be a product of like that technology in a way that like we haven't seen before. And maybe that's something where you want to think about like let's be cautious about those consequences, right? Like we don't want to live in a dystopian world where anybody could be fired because they, you know, look bad, uh, taken out of context and now like 
half of America thinks you're a horrible person. So there's a John Ronson book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, that's about this. And that's like very specifically about that dynamic, right? We're not talking about famous people. We're talking about like regular people who do a dumb thing. Uh, Maybe that thing actually is offensive. Maybe it's just taken out of context to appear so. And then, you know, there's kind of public outrage and bad things happen to them. By the way, you know, can happen from the left or the right, right? So in his book, uh, John has this example of a woman who was like, took a disrespectful photo at a war memorial, right? And so then there was right-wing out- outrage and, you know, death threats and blah, blah, blah. Right? So like, is that, I mean, that, that does feel like conflating two kind of different things to me though, right? So like that, that's not a function of like somebody in a specific community um, identifies as a member of that community and then members of that community decide that they suck and to kick them out. Um, it's you become the target of like public ire kind of by accident, right? That that seems pretty different, doesn't it? So I guess I'm struggling with your the, the distinction you're drawing. So you're, you're, you're suggesting that there, to, you know, for, cant- for cancellation to occur, it's a... Uh, it's a set of norms. It's a group that is deciding to en masse, like, we don't like this person now because they did this one thing we, we deem offensive or we deem against our norms. And therefore, we're going to do everything we can to kick them out of our tribe. So that's certainly one flavor, I would say, of cancellation. Uh, and that's certainly what ContraPoints experienced um, personally. But it seems like cancellation could, I don't know, it seems like it could describe... To me, cancellation is online mobbing um, uh, and where uh, someone's character is assassinated. So an action is is taken out of context uh, and essentialized. And then uh, people uh, presume guilt and then moralize against them and then demand, uh, uh, you know, something happened to them. And it's not clear what the motives are of the people. It could just be schadenfreude. It could be, you know, uh, they're, they're jealous. It could be they're truly outraged and, and they, they think this person deserves uh, punishment. Um, but it seems like both are these are flavors of the same thing. I, I'm not sure you need to have the, 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 the tight in-group for it to be cancellation, but, but maybe you disagree. Well, I mean, I'm not attached to the term per se. I just think that these are really different dynamics, if only because the getting kicked out of a small, tight-knit group thing doesn't require the internet at all. Uh, so in this video, uh, ContraPoints mentioned actually this uh, piece that I had read before about the second wave feminist movement in the 70s. And apparently this dynamic totally happened in that, you know, if you... Uh, are perceived as being too egotistical, getting too much attention, claiming too much credit for yourself. Uh, other people will try and tear you down and they'll try and tear you down in a very specific way that says like, this is a person who doesn't share our values. This is a person who like shouldn't be in our group, not because of like a, the one specific like misdeed that we can point to, but kind of a general indictment of their character of like, this is not a person of who has the values that we want in the movement, therefore get rid of them, right? 100% pre-internet, you know, the smaller and tighter knit the group is, you know, the less you require technology in order to do any of this. So, like, what I thought was super interesting is, like, I think this is probably a really old dynamic, actually. Um, and so I, I wouldn't want to conflate it with, oh, new stuff happens on the Internet, which is often, you know, the case when people talk about this stuff. They're like, well, Twitter enables this bad behavior or whatever. And I, I think that this, like, 
you know, that what I want to call like cancellation, it doesn't require technology at all, right? Online mobbing, I mean, it's right there in the name. Um, it, it does, right? Like, how else would you come to uh, the world's attention for doing something kind of trivially dumb, except that like uh, your tweet goes viral or whatever. Right. That makes sense. So the, the article that you're referring to is called Trashing, uh, The Dark Side of Sisterhood, and written by someone who just with the first name Joreen, I think uh, wants to uh, remain anonymous, was written in 1976 in Miss Magazine. Um, I found that really interesting, that article, because it's a first person account of what it's like to be the recipient of trashing or if you want cancellation um and it, i i found it really moving i mean th this person um uh you know felt like half of herself was was no longer because uh, she strongly identified as a feminist and a second wave feminist and uh, she was no longer no longer accepted in uh her former in-group um so it's a deeply moving piece i i, I thought at least um i think it acts as a, a counterpoint to some extent, just, just just understand what it's like to kind of have these feelings. And I must admit um, that I might have, I have felt at times some of these feelings. And I, I don't want to say, you know, I've ever been trashed or canceled or anything like this, but I certainly have been criticized online. Um, and it, you know, and I think, you know, you're online and uh, you're to some extent a public figure when you're commenting on Twitter. Um, and you know, it's, it's just part of the, part of the deal that you, you know, you can, you can say what you want, but also people can say to you what, what you know, what they want. Um, but, uh, I must admit that part of my dislike of Twitter is that I realize I don't have a, I don't have a stomach for the, these kinds of critiques where people, I feel misconstrue what I say or don't allow in, a, in, in some occasions for a nuanced argument, um, and then, uh, kind of trash me or criticize me for, for reasons that I, I, that I personally consider unfair. Right. So to me, this is mitigated by the fact that like, I just don't feel like whatever group you're talking about, like people talking about the intersection of science and politics on Twitter or whatever, like it's just not an important enough part of my identity that if I'm criticized by some people or, you know, kicked out of whatever club, like, what would that even be? Like, it, it just doesn't have those same consequences because it, it it's not such an important part of how we think of ourselves. Um, actually, what I was just thinking about when you were saying, you know, you do feel this sometimes is like, you know, these senior figures in psychology, like, uh, think about John Barge or Roy Baumeister. I wonder if this is how they feel. Like it is like that is what would hurt, right? Is if uh, other researchers decided that I was not worthwhile as a researcher, right? And and particularly then if I felt that, you know, they were misconstruing me or that there was this unfair rush to judgment or, you know, like things are more complicated than they're made out to be. And people have this very reductive idea of, you know, oh, Inbar just p-hacked all his results or even worse, like made them up, right? And uh, And then I'm, you know, kicked out of the club and nobody respects me anymore. Like- that would be traumatic, actually. Absolutely. And I, and I know for, for a fact that some of those people you just mentioned, in fact, are having deep uh, troubles coping with this very fact. Uh, they were, you know, uh, you know, among the top of their 
in, of this group that they strongly identified with, that, that rewarded them for their entire careers or nearly their entire careers. And all of a sudden, at least online, among a certain faction, a very vocal faction of their communities, um, they are, you know, person, person, persona non grata. They're not, uh, they're no longer people. Right. And then also this element of um, like professional jealousy, which does seem to play a role. Um, so in the uh, uh, with the trashing article, for example, she talked about that. ContraPoints brought that up as well. Like she's, you know, successful. She has a lot of Patreon supporters, whatever. And people get resentful about that. And they're like, let's tear down the successful person. And, you know, I'm sure to the successful people whose work is now being criticized, that's how it feels, right? They're coming after me because I was successful and they resent that. And there's these less successful people now taking this opportunity to tear me to shreds. Right. Well, that's where the, you know, the term second stringer comes from, right? It's like, you know, these are these nobodies who are jealous of my success and uh, they're just simply jealous. And that's, that's what's motivating them. Not, not that they truly have a point. Right. So have we come around to now being pro-cancellation? <laughs> Not at all. I, I actually think these examples, uh, to me, I've always felt uh, sympathetic. This, this is, despite me uh, uh, agreeing with the critiques of these specific people's work, I always have a soft spot for these people because they're humans. And I, maybe I'm too, being too generous of character here, but like I, I presume that these person, these people were doing the best possible work that they were capable of at that moment, given the knowledge they had. And now it feels like the norms have changed very quickly, um, and or at least quickly online, right? I, I'm not trying to know how quickly the norms have changed in, in, in reality. Um, and then they're being vilified and, and being seen as non-people. Um, so that's what I have sympathy, even, even though I disagree with their work, I have sympathy for the people. On the drive from solution to surface. In my old university car We had the windows down for our aircon The door was so hot that you burned your arm It was the tail end of a summer And the heat washed in with the breeze And you were searching for something to sing to As the radio played Another terrible song But lucky for me You found a tape with Tallulah on Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod, where you can at mention or DM us. We both check that account. If you'd rather email us, the easiest way to do so is to use our address, uh, fourbeerspod at gmail.com, which will go to both of us. Finally, our website, as always, is fourbeers.fireside.fm. Uh, you can listen to the current episode there. You can listen to back episodes as well. And you can drop us a note there as well if you would like um mickey have i left anything out no you haven't i mean just keep on uh rating and reviewing us on itunes we uh find them very humorous your reviews so uh please keep doing it yeah we we 100 appreciate those there's been a i think one or two that were posted in the last month or so so 
We always like to see those and and keep it up. Okay, so uh, as far as beer, we have nothing new to report. Uh, Mickey was kind enough to bring over a four pack of this, as he's been complaining about these very tiny cans, but which standard cans? Yeah, yeah, they're standard beer. cans, but I feel like that just they just seem so small given the the regular cans, and I have no tr- trouble finishing them whatsoever. Are you actually on your second can? I am actually drinking two beers. Oh my God. It's a be- banner day for the podcast. Hey, look, you're going to have a wonderful afternoon. I'm going to be very chill. I have a big hunk of meat in the slow cooker. So I'm going to get like a little buzzed, eat a, <laughs> eat a big piece of prime rib and fall right asleep. It's going to be great. And you're trying to break free of the bro label. Yeah. I'm not doing myself any favors. Am I? Well, <laughs> I cooked it myself though. Do bros cook? I feel like they don't cook. I don't think they cook. They don't cook. Yeah. So I got that going for me. All right. Okay. So yeah, um, I suggested uh, that we talk about this paper on this episode, although I think this is something that we've both been interested in. Uh, We both uh, were talking about this paper when it came out um, and thought that it deserved kind of a more serious look. Uh, So the name of the paper is The Generalizability Crisis. It's by Tolia Arconi. There's a ton of discussion about this on Twitter when it first came out, uh, like a month or two ago. Um, and I, you know, I, I followed that uh, pretty closely and I, I thought there was some interesting back and forth about it. Uh, and uh, I guess I wanted to talk about it, uh, but to wait a little bit to give us time to sort of read it over, uh, think about it and maybe uh, listen to um, some other people's opinions. So, you know, in our discussion about this, I at least am influenced by a lot of the stuff I read on Twitter. I'm influenced by uh, Very Bad Wizards, who just did uh, an episode, their most recent episode that sort of touched on this uh, in a way. Um, wait, they, wait, they also touched on our own episode. They they did. So this is a response to their response to our episode. So that's like getting getting real. The snake swallows its own tail, man. <laughs> I just think they're starved for material and they're just listening. That's to obviously for... it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. It's all uh, short stories and then uh, our podcast episodes. Um, I, I really have been digging the Borges episodes that they've been doing as well. So this is going to just call this a plug for that. Anyway, that's wandered off topic. Um, the uh, This paper, uh, broadly what it's arguing is that uh, we have a problem that we don't talk about that much, which is we make these very broad verbal claims. So we write in the paper um, – gratitude makes people more pro-social. And then we instantiate the statistical tests of those claims in a much more narrow way. So we use a specific paradigm, a specific set of stimuli, a specific DV, and we want to make very broad conclusions from these very narrow operationalizations. And what he argues in the paper is that those statistical tests are essentially meaningless for testing that broad verbal claim. And that if you do the right test, which he has some examples of basically modeling the uncertainty around the different ways that you could have operationalized a bunch of things. And that list can go on. You know, you can think about like differences in the manipulation, differences in the measure, differences in uh, how subjects were run, et cetera. Like if you try and put some sort of like quantification on all of that, um, you very quickly arrive at a situation where you're like, well, we can't really conclude anything. In other words, um, our results, if they are, even if they are 
quite replicable within a certain paradigm or really specific to that paradigm. And so we should either, you know, stop with all the quantifying or else really scale back the verbal claims to the point where nobody would be very impressed with them. So it's a bit of a downer of a paper, but I think makes a really strong case. So Mickey, what, what did you think of this? I thought it was a great paper. And um, I think we said this off air. Uh, I adore Talia Arconi. I mean, he's, uh, I think he's probably one of the smartest people around uh, on Twitter, especially. Um, and I fear any, uh, actually, I fear a kind of conversation with him because he's always going to best me in any kind of argument. So I just, just generally agree with him. Um, and I agree with the paper as well. I think he, um, very convincingly, uh, argues that, uh, we have, uh, we make claims that are not justified that, uh, in essence, we're trying to make very, very broad claims, general claims about how the mind works or how people behave when in fact, all we can say is something very, very specific. We can say, you know, in the best case scenario, that when I manipulate you with a very specific thing, these specific group of participants um, who, you know, uh, respond in a certain way when I measure the response in this other specific way. So you go from a very, very general claim. Uh, so an example that he uses is... Um, you know, anger increases economic charity, a very general acclaim, to something very specific to transient manipulations of self-reported anger influence small hypothetical charitable donations. Um, and that second one is not only is a mouthful and uh, not soundbitey enough, um, but it's like, uh, who cares about transient manipulations of anger? And who cares about hypothetical charitable donations? And it's a small change in the hypothetical uh, donation that people would give. So all of a sudden, we just care a lot less about it. But that more specific claim is accurate. The more general claim, I'm convinced, is inaccurate. And we actually can't say it at all, at least not with the studies that we run and with the numbers that we've crunched. So it seems like one response to this might be, you know, this is just how science actually progresses. So in other words, somebody publishes a finding that says X causes Y. And then if it draws interest and proves to be replicable, other people start asking under all circumstances, like maybe not for this type of person, maybe not in this situation, right? And we end up finding these individual difference or situational moderators um, that produce changes in uh, the, the relationship. And that's kind of the cumulative nature of what it is we're doing. So what he's essentially saying is like, okay, well, the first paper to demonstrate a relationship can't demonstrate that it holds under all circumstances. And people would say, sure, that's what the follow-up research is for. So what, I mean, what's, what's wrong with that? Like, why not do that? Well, I think at, at the very least, uh, those first authors should uh, put constraints on their statements of generalizability. They shouldn't say all humans, capital H, humans, um, you know, behave in a certain way. It's more like undergrads in this one university, in this one small town, in this one you know place in the U.S. act a certain way with un when they're exposed to these very specific things, and then. We connect another study. We're like, okay, let's look at another small town. Or, and then the third study would be, let's look at a big town. And then let's look at other stimuli. So 
I think he's trying to say we need to be more modest, at least from the get-go, and not make the general statements because we found it once, twice, or even five times. Um, because we haven't, you know, the numbers that we report at least aren't, don't bear any resemblance to the, to the verbal statements we're trying to make. Um, and I think what he's saying is if you want to make the verbal statement, make the verbal statement, but make it on logical grounds. You don't need to necessarily make it on empirical, quantifiable grounds. But I don't think as psychologists, um, because the decisions that were made 100 years ago about the way the field was going to be, uh, we decided we we're going to be a you know, quantitative science. Um, I think we get, um, we get some appeal, some sex appeal by adding numbers to our verbal claims. So we're listened to more than other disciplines that simply make verbal claims uh, because we've got numbers uh, and we claim to be a general science. But what he's suggesting is um, those numbers are, uh, you know, they're an illusion. So you think this is a problem that could be solved just by changing how results are described rhetorically? So in other words, the issue is that, you know, the title or the abstract or the intro or the GD describe things too broadly. And if we describe them appropriately, narrowly, then no big deal. Then it's no, fine. no, no. I, I don't think that solves the problem. I think that, that, that we're, we're then at least being honest. Right? We're being honest with what we found. We found this very, very constrained thing. And that's it. Um, I'm not making a global statement about humanity, about, uh, you know, uh, about how the way the mind works. Um, I'm saying something very specific. Um, and that's it. And then if you, you, if you want to extrapolate, you need to then run studies that add extrapolation, that add generalizability. That's what I think he's arguing. But I don't think any of us really, I don't think many of us want to make those claims. We want to make the general claims. We want to be philosophers, I think, a lot of us. We want to play with big ideas. We want to make statements about the way the mind works based on, on our lay intuitions, based on our study of, uh, of the literature, um, but yet our, the numbers, the, the studies that we conduct, with some exceptions, um, don't, you know, don't allow us to do that. That's what I, I think that's what he's saying, but it, it seems like you're, you're trying to make a, a separate point. Well, uh, I don't know. You know, what strikes me as kind of like uh, ironic, I guess, here is that um, kind of in the early days of the reproducibility crisis, there were kind of more senior researchers who are saying things that I'm going to paraphrase as you guys are overly focused on the replicability of single results and you should care more about conceptual replication. And I kind of feel like the way you put that argument just now is that's that's exactly what it is, right? Yeah, I agree. And I actually, I think uh, I was surprised numerous times to see Tal uh, defend conceptual replications as the way to go on Twitter. So I'm like, I thought we all agreed that like we need to have the, the, the first, the, the basic direct replication or close replication, and then we go conceptual. Um, but I think because he's, so, he's been so concerned with generalizability, I think he's like, if you want to make these global claims, these global, global is even too big. Um, generalizable claims, um, you have to... Uh, approximate, you have to add variability in your measurement, in your, in, in your manipulations. And when you do that, you'll realize that you're, you know, at least the studies we run as we're running them say very, very little. Right. So he, uh, he gets a bit harsh, I think, about 
projects like uh, registered replication reports where he so he talks specifically about uh, the verbal overshadowing finding and just briefly what that finding is that with this specific set of stimuli uh, people see somebody do something one group is asked to describe the person's physical appearance the other group does some filler task and then later uh, you compare the performance uh, of both groups at recognizing the person that they saw and the people who did the verbal description actually do worse on that task so they're less able to recognize the person that they saw in, in this case in the video and uh, this is a like a well known finding and there was a huge uh, replication effort involving you know thousands of participants and in international like consortium of labs that worked on this as a standard for these sorts of projects and he basically says look this is a waste of time like why do you bother right um because without knowing how general this effect is why why do we care about the point estimate of the effect under these very specific conditions. And that like, that's sort of like, oh, these big uh, multi-site replications are a waste of time because like, we don't care about any one effect. We care about the overall like picture. That's something that I've definitely heard from people who are like critical of like methods reform in general, right? Who are, who I see as like these kind of like people who are more invested in the status quo. So again, it's interesting to see somebody who I think of as like very much aligned with um, reform efforts to take this view. Yeah, I mean, I agree, but I, I, I think he is championing both. He's like, yeah, we need replicability. And like, uh, you know, I, I think he would criticize some of the, the dinosaurs who are defending the status quo um, as not being honest brokers, right? They're kind of, you know, retreating to kind of theory as a way to defend against the lack of replicability. I think he's saying you need both. You need replicability, but replicability of what? Of a narrow conceptualization of a thing? Um, and for me, I'm like, well, I want both. I, I, I do want, I, I, I think it's important enough, at least as a stress test of a field, to, to know whether even something is replicable or not. And what he's saying is next step is, you know, okay, verbal overshadowing replicated. Okay, it did, at least in one version of this replication. Um, and he's saying step number two is, okay, how generalizable is, is this phenomenon? And, you know, at least the data as he reanalyzes, like it's not very generalizable. Um, cause there the, was the support for this phenomenon was actually pretty modest. Um, so I think there are two separate points to some extent. Um, I think, I think, I don't want to put words in Tal's mouth is that he would say the conceptual issues are the, the more critical ones, but I'm not, I, you know, I'm not sure the argument of what comes first is, is really that important. Um, I think they're all important. I think we need um, solid facts, even small, constrained, little teeny facts that are only about like one small group. Those are, we need those. We need those to be solid. And because those are the small little, like, let's say the, 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 the grains of sand that then build our bricks. And maybe the bricks are, you know, conceptual facts, more global facts, facts that are uh, more universal. And he's arguing for, you know, we, uh, uh, that our, the current way we do business is not establishing universal facts. It's not building bricks at all. We think they're building bricks, but they're not at all. Right. Right. So I guess um, a really important question here for somebody who's like, well, this is part of the way that science progresses is, you know, does that follow up get work get done at all? Right. Like, are these we're we're writing these checks here where we're saying, 
you know, yeah, we demonstrated under this one specific set of conditions, we're going to make the broad statement and now follow up work is going to determine moderators and boundary conditions and etc. But like, does that actually get done? Or is it now like, oh, well, that's boring, you know, on to the next thing. Right. And you know, I do have a, like a, a worry that for many, you know, phenomena or findings, like once it's kind of been established, it's like, well, kind of the follow up drudgery is like not anything that anybody wants to do. Right. Um, with the exception of like, I guess I can think of like some uh, areas where like a specific idea really just drew the attention of a ton of people. And then you saw like a lot of follow up work around like moderators and so on, or uh, where a lab or, or like a research group really owns an idea and they just like grind the hell out of it. Like that sounds uncomplimentary, but you know, I mean it in a good way. Right. So if you yeah. think about like um, doing that, the kind of boring work. To yeah, get exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. So like uh, uh, ELM elaboration likelihood model is sort of, to me, the canonical example of that, where uh, the Ohio state people just ran every conceivable variation. Right. And so like, I would say that's pretty well understood. Um, but I guess then it's like, well, is, is that the sort of science that like, attracted people to be social psychologists and tall seems to think no like this is like the sort of science that we're able to do then is kind of by nature just like much smaller scale much more incremental much slower and what he seems to think maybe this is unfair but like it seems like his attitude is well a lot of social psychologists got into it because they wanted to like you know play with big ideas and then also incidentally like you know be quantifiable and stuff Right. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think we want our cake and eat it too. Like we want to have play these big ideas, but then not do the, the, the drudgery, the, the, the hard, hard, hard work, you know, career spanning work to make, to build one brick. Like we don't want to, like, you know, as a career, we don't want to build one brick. We want to have like at least one line of bricks, right? Like multiple bricks, but in tr in truly it's going to take a monumental effort to even build one brick. I don't think even one career is enough to build a brick. Um, at least the way Tal has conceived it, right? I mean, uh, to make a simple statement of fact that's a general fact takes, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of participants, many, many studies, hundreds of studies, variation, uh, you know, is, is the rule here. And that takes a long time. And I don't think many of us have gone into this to do that kind of work. I think we'd rather, we want to do TED Talks. We want to talk about big ideas and talk, you know, shape policy. And, um, and you know, I say this, uh, you know, mockingly, but I, you know, that in, in some ways I was attracted to that too. Like the, the, this notion of playing with ideas. I like that. Um, I find that much more appealing, especially as I've gotten older, than to do, you know, quote unquote bench science, right? Like the kind of, you know, more basic work. Um, and maybe I'm a kind of a wannabe, you know, philosopher. Maybe I want to, I want to be just, you know, a player of ideas and, and, and you know, Daryl Bem famously or infamously said, um, the, 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 the data were just used as rhetorical points. The data were not important. Well, okay. That's sure. That's, that's okay. In, in, in something, uh, that's not a quantitative science, but psychology is not that Quant psychology is a quantitative science. So you can't do that in psychology, or at least you shouldn't be able to. Um, and I think we've gone away with um, making uh, logical claims that are probably true. Uh, there's probably a lot of truth to many of the claims that psychologists have made. And we've propped them up with data, but we, need, we didn't need the data to prop them up at all. 
So do you think this article is going to change how you do your work? Not at all. <laughs> no, by, by, by <laughs> mission accomplished. <laughs> there you go, Tal. Uh, uh, that's a fuck you to tell. No, mostly because I, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure if I believe this specific version of this argument that he made. So he made a very quantitative argument. And I was, I, I think I've been more convinced by, actually, it's hilarious. He made a quantitative argument while he needed was verbal arguments to make, uh, which is kind of his point as well. Um, you know, our, our earlier episode against experiments, um, you know, I, th that book that we read, uh, The Rise and Fall of Social Psychology by Augustine Brannigan, that was a kind of mind fuck for me. That 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 uh, that changed my mind. It it affected me uh, more than I thought it would, um, and I realized then that um, yeah, it's a bit of a show that we're doing here. Uh, so you know, reading that and also kind of us talking over the year, over the couple of years here, and, and being steep in the replication crisis, open science stuff, I'd been thinking differently about science already. So I'm not sure his paper changed my mind, but he kind of, I agreed with pretty much everything he said. So, but if, if you're coming to, at this from, you know, never being exposed to these arguments, maybe this will change your mind. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I was, I was about to say something similar. So how much what he's saying here echoes uh, what was said in Brannigan's book. Uh, we alluded to a couple papers by uh, Bill McGuire, I think, in the Against Experiments episode, where it, and McGuire isn't uh, cited. Actually, it was in our uh, Christmas episode. Oh, it was? Really? Very quickly, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so basically, um, we'll post some links in the show notes, but McGuire makes without numbers the same argument that, you know, if you're uh, a sufficiently good experimenter, you can get the thing to come out the way that you want it to come out by selecting the right situation, selecting the right stimuli, and so on. Um, and you can find its opposite. Too. And you can find its opposite, which is exactly what Tall says about verbal overshadowing, right? That it's logically true that you have to be able to find it and its opposite. Um, so this is, uh, I guess, this paper is just, uh, and I don't mean this derisively, I think it's incredibly well done, but a summary and a quantification of stuff that people have been saying for a while. Yeah. Right? Is that fair? Yeah, I, I, I think it is fair. But it's still a mind bomb. Like, if you haven't, like, been exposed to these ideas or, like, kind of let yourself think about these things deeply, it's a mind fuck. I mean, it's like, wait, hold on. I, I, thought, I, I thought I was, like, you know, approximating truth here. Um, and you realize, like, Pretty much all our verbal statements, um, to the extent that each verbal statement is true, and if they logically cohere, they're, they're bound to be true, at least in some cases. Um, so, yeah. But, you know, I want to bring up one um, counterpoint. Uh, so I only saw one person kind of push back against Tal online. Um, which again, I, as I said, you know, kind of in our intro is a dangerous proposition because Tal is so brilliant. Um, and that was uh, from uh, Daniel Lockins. And Daniel, I think, uh, said he he was primed to disagree with the paper before he read it, and then he read it and he disagreed with it. And I think the reason, and, and I hope I'm not going to butcher his point, is that essentially what Tal has done is he's formalized, maybe mathematically, the problem of induction. Okay, um, but we've known about this problem for you know, a few centuries now. We we've known that you know just because you know every swan you've seen in your lifetime is white, you you're not justified to make the claim that all swans are white because you haven't traveled to every corner in the world. And it just so happened with this example that 
eventually people went down to Australia and they found, wow, there are actually black swans. And as a side note, I, I saw many black swans in Australia and I was thrilled every time I saw them. It was just like a science meeting nature. Um, so, you know, and, and philosophers have known this for a long, long time that, that it, you know, science doesn't advance by, by induction because you can't know every aspect of the world, every ex aspect of experience, and you're, you're eventually, you're bound to be wrong sometimes, and it's not a good basis of science. So philosophers of science instead have argued that the, dedu the deductive method is, is the far more, um, uh, it's the method that will lead to, 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 to firmer conclusions than induction. And deduction is uh, when you have a, you know, a general rule, a general principle, and then you derive specific hypotheses from this general rule and general principle. So all Hattal has done is said induction is fucked. I'm like, okay. Um, we've known this for a long, long time. Um, yeah, and he's formalized and argued in a specific way. Maybe psychologists have forgotten about it. I think psychologists, we have... Um, I heard recently in a talk, uh, psychology and social psychology described as a, 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 a discipline that is, cares about phenomena. And I think to some extent it's true. Like we care about like certain things, classes of things, and we spend a lot of energy describing those things. Um, and you can argue that's, that's inductive. We try to make rules about things we observe. But instead, um, Daniel argued is we, or in, and many others as well, um, uh, we need to have theories. You know, and theories that then lead to hypotheses and predictions. And especially if you can derive risky predictions, crazy predictions, counterintuitive predictions from your theory, and then you go, go ahead and test that. And if you find positive evidence for that thing, an existence proof, which I think you talked about uh, in our Gantz experiment uh, study, then your, your, uh, your theory has survived. It has not been falsified. So we don't care in science about specific phenomena. We care about theories. And what we should be doing is, is finding situations that, that expose our theories to strong tests. And if we can find even one version of that thing being true, then our, 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 um, our theory survives and we can keep using it. Because the theory doesn't apply just to that one thing. It applies to many other things. And to me... Um, I don't know. I, 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 I was somewhat convinced by that argument. I don't know that to me, that doesn't seem like uh, that much of a disagreement. I think both of those, uh, both what Tal is saying and what I guess you say, Daniel was saying, they both start with a premise that like the way that we're currently doing what we're doing isn't working well. Um, and kind of for logical reasons, can't give us the kind of answers that we want. And they then go on to say like, well, here's two like kind of broad classes of things you could do in order to get the answers that you want or or, or at least like be more realistic about uh, interpreting the answers that you do get. Um, so I don't really see the contradiction, right? So like if we are going to be inductive, then we need to be actually recognizing the fact that we can't make the kinds of broad inferences that we want to make from what we're observing. Uh, or alternatively, I guess we could just reconfigure the entire field to take a deductive approach and to proceed from, you know, strong in, in the sense of like making very concrete and, and, and uh, narrow predictions, um, formal theories. And both of those fields would look super different from what we have now. 
right? And I, I guess they are somewhat different approaches to, you know, how would we how do we change in response to the fact of like where we are now? But I, I don't I don't see the I guess conflict there. Yeah, no, maybe you're right. Maybe maybe it's not so much a conflict because I tell tell specifically uh, critiquing induction. And and Daniel is saying um, induction is is has been a dead end for a few hundred years now. So fuck induction. And and by the way, all you social psychologists, you've been doing induction, and you shouldn't be doing it because that's not the way to operate. But I, uh, I kind of echoing what you said earlier, this is what like people like Fritz Strzok have been saying for many years now, right? It's not about it's not about the specific um, operationalization of a study. It's about like this. I've done a study to test a theory, and my theory survived. Yes, and maybe the, the operationalization was very specific, and it's only to those one specific cases, but it survived. You, now it's up to you, my critic, to show me where it doesn't survive. Um, but I mean, I, I, I think the, you know, to argue against my own point, um, the, the, the argument, the, the problem with that is if we believe McGuire and, and Yarconi, it seems like we could find evidence for pretty much any claim. If all we need is just one existence proof, um, you know, to, to, to prop up a theory, then is deduction safe too? Right, right. So that seems like a, a huge problem. And, you know, I, I get the feeling that, like, the deductive rigor in in a field like psychology is, is kind of, it's illusory to me. Um, I think that, you know, you proceed by this like chain of logical reasoning and you're like, well, we should get this result X. And then you sort of mess with the situation until you get result X. Right. And so like, to me, that's not actually informative that that's um, yeah. Pseudoscience almost. Right. It has the illusion of rigor, but in fact, you're just taking advantage of flexibility in experimental design. And I love that I'm making this stuff sound so simple and I can never get these fucking complicated experiments to work. <laughs> I'm conscious of that. You know, but people who are better than I am at this um, evidently can do that. And so I guess it's, it's, it's a question of like how good are the theories in terms of making these like very kind of specific, ideally point predictions that would be falsified by any observation that isn't within a, like a very narrow band. Right. And in social psych, do we have those theories? Like, I don't, I don't know of any, do you? No, I don't. I mean, so I think what you're, if, I want to make sure I understand you. You're suggesting that uh, our theories are weak because we just make at best directional predictions. Um, and that's it. And like, as long as it's not zero, you're good. You've, you, your, your, your theory has been confirmed or not falsified. Um, when in fact, what we, what we truly need, and this is what happens in physics, um, you need pretty tight point predictions. And it, you know, let's give us a little bit of, you know, a little bit of leeway. Maybe we don't even need tight. Maybe we just need it's above and below a pretty broad area. As long as that broad area is not above zero only. Um, if we did that, we'd already be uh, doing a lot more than what we're currently doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like our theories, such as they are, they might predict like this group is going to you know, score higher than that group. But like it's no more specific than that. And, you know, you can see how little we 
care as a field about anything other than just like kind of rank ordering from, you know, when people make up data, they often made it up with just these ridiculously implausible effect sizes, you know, like frauds that had been discovered. And this just went unnoticed, right? So it's like, yeah, this like, you know, priming manipulation, D of 1.5. And nobody was like, that seems crazy, right? So we're so uncalibrated about magnitude of differences that just like never occurred to people. Um, and that seems like, boy, if your theory is like the best that they can do is say like A bigger than B, then I don't know that like you can pretend to really be deductive about things. Right, right. So, okay, so I wonder if we can like one like conclusion that we can derive here is, okay, let's um, let's be more deductive. So let's, you know, rely on theories a bit more as opposed to like us having lay intuitions and describing phenomena. Well, actually describing phenomena will be fine, but like, um, you know, uh, theory testing about phenomenon and doing quantitative, you know, uh, comparisons with phenomena. So if you want to describe, sure, but, but maybe we should be deductive and describe. Um, and then in terms of deduction, at least, we should uh, have at least as we mature, as our deductive theories mature, we should be more precise with our predictions. More than just A is different than B, or A bigger than B. We should be, A should be about this size. You know, you know and again, let's give us some leeway. A, you know, the, the effect of priming on some behavior should be, um, you know, a D of 0.2 to 0.3. And if it's not, then my theory is wrong. I mean, would that be in advance over what we're currently doing? Yeah. And the question is, given the state of how we study things, is that possible? No, it's not. I mean, I think y'all makes, uh, y'all, <laughs> uh, Tal makes that point very clearly, right? Because there's so much noise and variance that we are not explaining. And once you start adding them into, um, you know, uh, our, our, our quantitative models, you realize that you know we're just deal. Our, our measurements are so noisy that it can't it can't survive the the, the amount of no the, the amount of noise that's introduced by regular variance that happens from random variation and things. Yeah, so it, it's funny. Like reading this over again today, I was like, man, this is sort of stuff that I've heard from smart undergraduates who like come from a come for a lab meeting or two, and they're like, but you know, is this stuff like in the real world, it's like really complicated and like different people are really different. And how, how do you know this means anything? And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Random assignment. Don't worry about it. You know what I mean? And it's right. like, no, those undergrads actually were onto something. Right. And like maybe, you know, and this is like a hundred percent from uh, the against experiments episode, but like we really have to think about whether the experimental method is best for studying the kinds of questions that we care about, right? If we're not, if we don't care about, you know, visual processing, if we care about this complex social behavior, is the experiment the best way to study that? Yeah. No, I'm increasingly uh, uh, convinced that it's not. So, you know, at the end of the paper, uh, Tal, um, he offers quote-unquote solutions. They're not really solutions. They're just like, how do you resolve this, you know, crisis of generalizability? Um and he offers a few. So one is like, you know, leave the field, <laughs> get out of Dodge. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so he comes at it because he's kind of only half in academia, right? So he's a, 
I guess his title is research scientist. He's on soft money and he's comfortable living in that way. But I think he's got other skills, computational and quantitative skills that he could like go be a data scientist for some Silicon Valley company and, and make way more money and, and be happy. Um, but I think that's that's a, a fine solution, right? So let's let's assume for you and I, tenured professors, that's not you know I can't do fucking anything else, man. This is it for me, man. Um, I can't even like I, I can't I literally can't do anything else. I I could I could clean houses, I guess. I, I'm pretty good at cleaning, uh, but that's about it. Um, but the other solutions uh, I think are more uh, tractable for me, and one is is very attractive. In fact, one that I'm uh, I'm increasingly doing, and that's you know he describes as um, doing qualitative research. I don't use that term qualitative. I, I try to th think of it more as descriptive research. But I'm trying, and I've done a few now uh, studies where I'm just trying to describe a state of reality constrained to a specific people. Um, and I find that I really do find that fascinating and interesting, and I think it, it will pay dividends in a different way. And this relates to uh, a paper we've alluded to a few times, Paul Rosen's work on the need for, you know, when a science is young to describe a phenomenon before we start hypothesizing about it. Um, so that, that was a solution that I, I found quite attractive. And that's what I'm doing more and more. Right. Right. So as somebody who also, I, I think he uh, differentiates between qualitative and descriptive research. And to me, the distinction there is qualitative is literally like you're not trying to quantify at all. Um, whereas descriptive, you know, you do have numbers, but like the, the point is more to say like, look, here's the state of the world. I measured it. Here's what I found. Right. Um, and as somebody who does now more descriptive research, uh, I'm <laughs> selfishly, uh, you know, on board with that. Um, and I do think that, you know, we should be doing more of it. And it is still, you know, it's surprisingly difficult to publish. Like, And also, it's so difficult, yeah, difficult to publish and, 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 and there are challenges in conducting it. But I find the results of, of good descriptive research, like, so fascinating. Even if it's constrained to, like, a, a smaller kind of subset of people, it's still super cool. Uh, so I don't think we need causality or claims of causality or claims of like, you know, like this kind of like, uh, the, the smoke and mirrors that you get from experiments. I, I don't think you need that to be wowed by, by research. Right. And so even for the stuff that you're doing, that's experimental. So for example, I, I happen to know you have a paper coming out in psych science with your student, uh, House Lin, uh, on, uh, ego depletion. So I assume that the way that you're writing this is because because I, you know, was talking to you while you were struggling to come up with this paradigm is like, here's one very specific paradigm that demonstrates some depletion like effects. And I assume you're not going from that to being like ego depletion totally exists. You know what I it's mean? Real, dude, it's real. Everybody. It's real. Don't it's believe real. Life. No, no, of course not. I mean, it's, it's, it's just like, here's one like. Maybe it's an existence proof that study. I'm not sure, but here's a way of bringing this about. But like you know, yeah, no, it does not prop up any phenomenon whatsoever, any literature. Right, and and so like when you're thinking about research that way, it's sort of inherently much more constrained, right? Because you're like, here's one technique that we've used that can reliably elicit this, and that's sort of like built into it is like a sense of just how narrow and specific that is. Yeah, maybe maybe it's like just like modesty, right? It's like and, and you know, and that goes with like some of Tal's alternative titles to papers. They're like, here's one version of a thing. Maybe there's something general. Like, wouldn't it be 
you know, refreshing if in a general discussion we we kind of reversed things in 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 a sense um, we like we talk very specifically about like you know we did this one thing on these one set of people with these one set of stimuli and this is you know uh, what it means and then you have instead of like a limitation section you have a generalizability section you know if this were true writ large this is what it would mean and this is what we can extrapolate but instead we do the reverse we do we we have the extrapolation we have the general statements we have the this is how this is going to change the world ted please come you know you know let me let me let me speak with you um and then we have a cursory limitation sections where we say forget about all that stuff i said about generalizability this is why this research sucks it would be cool to flip that right I feel like the way the reason you were able to write your recent paper that way is that ego depletion has taken so many kind of empirical hits that just a demonstration at all that you can like get it under any circumstances is interesting, right? So for a phenomenon where it's either new or people are more confident about it, I think there's going to be a lot of resistance to writing a paper that way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. In some ways, uh, I don't think it was an easy paper to write by any means. But uh, maybe we're we were able to to be. I hope we were not too general. I guess readers will have to judge for themselves. That's right. So um, you know, readers, you can write in and tell us where Mickey and uh, House were overgeneralizing. Any other uh, people on that paper that we should acknowledge? I don't want to. Oh yeah, so Blair Saunders and Malta Frieza and Nathan Evans as well were co-authors of that paper. Cool. Yeah, and we will put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and you know, because I promise you, Mickey did not put me up to this. This was. <laughs> Independently, <laughs> just occurred to me. And if someone actually, like you know, a listener, you know, DM'd us and said that paper was cringy, I would take that more personally than us our beer talk being cringy because I admit the 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 latter is cringy. Our complete ignorance about beer, <laughs> quite cringy. All right, well, is this a good place to leave it? It is cringy. All right, cheers, buddy. Bye. <laughs>